Staying with the topics of holy imagination and the gospel, today I want to talk about the Word of God. And no, and uh, just hang with me, don't take this too far as I'm talking, so just hang with me, I promise I'll fix it. Um, when I say the Word of God today, I don't mean the Bible. I mean the Word of God, whom the Bible itself says is the Son, Jesus. And all other words, including Scripture, are only words of God within their ability to reveal the Word of God, whose Scripture itself says is Jesus. However, there's one question that we have yet to adequately answer the past few weeks, and that is, what is the Word of God? And you might respond with, you just said it is Jesus. But deeper than that, what does it mean that Jesus is the Word? What is the idea of the Word itself, and what is John attempting to convey to his audience and to us about this Word? So before I get into John 1, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it. Let me read Proverbs chapter 8, because this is where John um, more than likely got this language from. Okay, So this is Proverbs chapter 8, verse 22, and I'm going to read just a few verses here. See if this kind of sounds familiar. The Lord created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of long ago. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When he had not yet made the earth and fields or the world's first bits of soil, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he, when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master worker. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhibited, inhabited excuse me, world, and delighting in the human race. Delighting in the human race. And now, my children, listen to me. Happy are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise. Hear instruction and be wise. We should get that like plastered on a big billboard in Colombia. Be wise and do not neglect it. Happy is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, for whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But those who, listen to this, but those who miss me injure themselves. All who hate me love death. Okay? So this is the writer of Proverbs um, personifying wisdom. Okay, So in Proverbs 8, the writer is speaking, of course, about wisdom. And here, wisdom is personified as the first of God's works. Not just first in succession, as in this is the first thing God made, but first in importance. The alternative, excuse me, the alternative translation is for uh, chapter verse 22 where I started, the Lord acquired me as the beginning of his work. So before God created, the writer says, 
wisdom was established. Consequently, wisdom stands by the side of the Lord as a master worker and delights as a little child in the work of his hands, specifically in the creation of, verse 31, the human race. And the implication is that through this wisdom personified, everything has been created. And this is, a, this is really important for what we're about to discuss, okay? So, so look, at the, look at the back half of this text real quick, and then I'll get to John 1, if everybody's still with me. He says, Happy are those who keep my ways, who listen to me, and find me, thus finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord. But then he also says this in contrast. He says, Those who miss me, or in the Hebrew, those who are made bare, or make bare themselves, those who miss me, and all who hate me, wisdom, love death. So finding wisdom, according to Proverbs, is life, and missing or hating wisdom, according to Proverbs, is death. This is how the writer defines this. Now, if you don't have any connections, if you're not making these subtle you know, connections to John 1 yet, we will in a minute. Remember, before I get into John 1, to the ancients, life and death were present realities as much as and sometimes more than future realities. So right here, when he says, for example, uh, those who find me find life and those who hate me love death, the writer's not speaking to when you die. So in other words, if you find wisdom, then you'll live on. But if you miss wisdom, immediately you'll drop. It, Life and death for the ancient world and, and in the New Testament, so still continued into the New Testament, the language of life and death are present realities as much as and usually more than future realities. So in other words, you could speak to someone who was fully alive, fully breathing, working a job, owning a farm, etc. You could look at their life and the ancients would look at them, and if they were living apart from God's plan for their life, they would say that person's dead. They're fully alive, but life and death are qualities of life. They are not, I won't say quantities because, you know, there's, there's, there's equal, one and one, but they're qualities of how you live, not what happens when you stop living. Does that make sense? So to find wisdom, according to the writer of Proverbs, is to find life, or we might say like this, to find wisdom is to come alive. To reject or dismiss or hate wisdom is for you to lose the thing that makes you fully alive. Does that make sense? So, so what, or rather who, is wisdom? John 1. Hopefully you're there by now. Listen to what John says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Very familiar, but I'm just going to read it. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word. So Jesus is the Word. But the Greek word logos, or logos, depending on who's speaking the Greek word, is not simply a spoken word, okay? So when John's saying, in the beginning was the word, 
he's not speaking to the spoken word of God. He's speaking to, this is straight from the lexicon, a communication whereby the mind finds full expression and also an independent personified expression of God. So it's not just in the beginning was the spoken word of God. It's in the beginning was the complete expression of who God is. And that's the word. In Greek thought, the divine print, and this is really deep. You can keep this or you can throw it away. It doesn't really matter, but I want to give it to you anyway. In Greek thought, the divine principle of reason that gives order to the universe and links the human mind to the mind of God is literally in Greek, logos. So the Greeks use this word logos quite a bit, specifically the philosophers. And when they use the word logos, it was speaking to the divine principle of reason that gives order to everything in the universe. And not only that, it allows us to be connected to God by way of that word or reason. This is what they're talking about when they say logos. So the idea behind this logos or word is the Jewish idea of wisdom. This is where the Greeks actually get this logos idea from. It's from the Jewish idea of wisdom. As seen in Proverbs 8, the first century Jewish philosopher, for example, example Philo, identified divine wisdom and word by evoking both biblical and Greek traditions. So when the Greeks use this, they're taking this idea of logos or word from the Jewish idea of wisdom. And this is why when John speaks in John 1 of word and he speaks, or John didn't write Proverbs, obviously, but when the Proverbs writer speaks of wisdom, they're both using the same language. Proverbs 8 starts with, I was at the beginning I was set up at first before the beginning of the earth. John 1 begins like this. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him. You see this? Okay. So now that's a lot of information. A lot of information. So let me break it down to you in, in just normal language. Jesus is not just what God has to say about himself. And Jesus certainly is not only the fulfillment of all the words spoken through the prophets. He is those things, but he's so much more than those things. In Jesus, in the Son, we find complete expression of God himself. When you look at the Son, you see Father, Son, and Spirit fully expressed in the Son. This is exactly who God is. It's not just what God has to say. However, in Christ we also find the complete expression of humanity in the entire creation. John reminds us here that it is through this word that all things came into being. So the writer of Proverbs reminds us that this wisdom or in the New Testament, this word, was not only the first in order of creation, but that it is he who was the master worker through whom all things were created and delighted in. Look at how Paul, Paul takes a stab at this as well. 
Listen to how Paul takes a stab at this right here. Colossians 1. Paul says this. He, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Same language. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things invisible, visible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, power. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Similar. So, so to be very clear, this is not to say that God the Father created Jesus in the beginning. That's the ancient heresy of Arianism. Okay? So none of this is speaking to God creating the Son in the beginning as the first of His works. None of that. Talk of the beginning. Jesus is eternal. So talk of the beginning is in relation to the order of physical creation. So for example, in other words, God creating wisdom in the beginning of his work is to say that as a precursor to creation, God made his eternal wisdom tangible to create by it. So Jesus is not wisdom. Wisdom is Jesus. Wisdom takes on the quality of the eternal son when wisdom is created in the beginning. Likewise, the Word was in the beginning because it takes on the qualities and beings as it had always been of the Son. I know this is a lot, but I'm getting to a point, okay? So just hang with me. In Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, this eternal wisdom, which was in the beginning and was that which all things came into being through, took on flesh and pitched His tent, John says, among us. That is Exodus language. There's a reason I'm connecting these, so just just bear with me. In Exodus, God commands the Israelites to build a tabernacle in the wilderness where God would live with his people and dwell with them. They literally pitched a tent for God. So God is saying, or excuse me, John is saying that God has once again now in the person of Christ pitched his tent among us. And he's done much more than pitch a physical tent so that the Spirit of God can dwell in it so that a handful of people throughout the entire lifetime of this physical tent can enter in and actually encounter God. John's taking it a step further and say, saying, God has once again pitched his tent among us, but he hasn't done it in the wilderness and he hasn't done it among a group of people where a handful can come in and a handful make it out. He has pitched his tent in the human flesh. Big. So now, according to John, there is no separation between us and the tabernacle where God is. According to John, in the incarnation, God has pitched his tent within us, which means there is no separation from the depth of the presence of God and you and I. And none of that is contingent on what people have done because when God pitched his tent among us in the flesh, in the Son, the rest of the New Testament says we were still ungodly. So when Jesus comes onto the scene and takes on flesh and dwells among us, we are as lost and delusional as we had ever been. 
And that lostness, that delusion, was not a contingency that God said you have to fix in order for me to enter into human nature. Now, how is that possible? Because in the beginning, when God created human nature in the image and likeness of God, it wasn't contingent on what humans would do with it later. Well, well, what about when he said, don't eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The consequence of eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was death. And yet, Adam and Eve did not die. Well, they died eventually. You know what I mean? What God is speaking to in the beginning and what John is speaking to here, in him was life and his life is the light of all people. When God creates you and I in his image and likeness and then gives the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because we don't need a knowledge of good and evil. Do you, think about this. What happens if we lose a knowledge of good and evil? Paul says this. Paul says, in fact, oh, no. Paul says this. He says, when the law was written and when it was made known to me, sin sprang to life. Paul says it is the awareness. He uses the example of covet. He said, before the law came that I should not covet, covet wasn't an issue for me. But when the law came in and says, thou shalt not covet, suddenly he says, all kinds of covetousness rose up in my heart and suddenly I started to covet. And that produced death because you and I weren't designed to carry a knowledge of good and evil. We were solely designed to carry a knowledge of who we are in Father, Son, and Spirit and let Father, Son, and Spirit carry the knowledge of good and evil for us. So in the beginning, there was no contingency on, I'll give you an image and likeness if you do this. Therefore, with that divine word, with that divine reasoning, God in the New Testament takes on flesh as we are as lost as ever, takes on that flesh, places his presence in the human nature and takes that all the way to the place of redemption in resurrection. In Christ, in Christ, the eternal son of the father, this eternal wisdom which was in the beginning and was that which all things came into being through, took on flesh. Lately, God has been asking us to reorient everything that we think that we know about God around who we know Jesus to be. This is what God has been doing in us lately. And a step deeper than that, which is what I want to you know, kind of talk about for a few minutes today, has been to allow Jesus himself to teach us who we should be, or excuse me, who we should know Jesus to be by the Spirit. So this is where we've been lately. The Lord has been teaching us to see him through the person of Jesus. Okay? But a step deeper, and this is where a lot of our issues lie, is that who we think we know Jesus to be, thus who we think we know Father, Son, and Spirit to be, 
is all skewed by things that we think we know about the Son, by things that in a lot of ways we've been told about the Son, and many of which are not true of the Son. So no matter how many times we go through the Son to get to the Father, we never make it, quite make it, to an accurate view of the Father because we typically don't have a very accurate view of the Son, and every time you skew that view and get to the Father, it always ends up distorted. So in order to see the Father through the Son, we have to see the Son for who the Son says He is, not who we say the Son is, and not who we want the Son to be. All of our preconceived notions of who God is, based on tradition or what we've always known, and tradition is not bad. One of these days, our great-grandkids are going to have a tradition that came from us, and it's going to be amazing. Okay, So not, not all tradition is bad, but... All of our preconceived notions of who God is based on bad tradition or what we've always known, what we've always been told, etc., are not in and of themselves wisdom. They are only wisdom if they flow from the truth of who Jesus is. Because who is wisdom? Jesus. Remember what Proverbs 8 told us. We find life if we find wisdom... And wisdom, as we see in the New Testament, is Christ. So you find life if you find Christ, and you find Christ by way of wisdom. Stick with me. Okay? But you find death if you miss or reject wisdom. Why? Because all things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing exists that has existed, and in him is life. Jesus says it like this. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Okay, so the issue of life and death within the human is not in dogma. It's not in towing a party line of whatever tradition one finds themselves in. The issue of life and death is a love or hate of true and authentic wisdom. I never thought I'd preach a message on wisdom. But here we are. And wisdom is not some abstract ideology that makes you really smart. You being smart does not make you wise, okay? In fact, I know a lot of people who are extremely smart and they are not wise. You know what I'm saying? So, so wisdom is not you have a PhD and you know everything there is to know about the New Testament, right? Wisdom is a man and that man's name is Jesus. And at the same time, wisdom is not, not those things as well. And I think this is where we've probably gone astray. We like to pit, for example, analytical thinking and things like faith against each other as if one is evil and one is good. I mean, how many times, maybe you've never heard this, but... I've sure heard it a lot. How many times have we heard, just in, in, the, in the Christian circle, how many times have we heard, don't think, just have faith? Don't think about it, just have faith. Right? In other words, faith, how many times have you heard this? Faith doesn't make sense. 
The idea is amazing. The idea is God walks you to the edge of a cliff and says, jump, and I promise I'll catch you. Right? But, 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 here's the issue. The New Testament writers and the Old Testament writers, um, but specifically John, calls Jesus the divine reason of God. The word. Reason deals almost solely with analytics. Reason is the why of everything. So, for example, if you ask me why we started our church, the entire answer that followed would be nothing but reason. Do you see this? So when Jesus enters into the human nature, flesh, when that takes place, the divine why, the divine reasoning that all of us and all of creation came into being through, likewise, entered into human flesh, which is exactly why we're given eternal life through him. Eternal is God life. We're giving, we're giving God life through the Son because suddenly the very why of our existence has collided with a delusional and lost existence and ripped it back into reason. But we like to put these things, uh, faith and thinking, or we like to put, for example, um, we'll, we'll, teach, we'll teach people how to be like, happy and have great money and you know, all this other stuff, but we rarely teach people anything deeper than whatever we think we're reading on the surface level of a text. Because we believe if we go any deeper, nobody will get it. It won't be relevant. People will be bored, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we need to give people what they can. We need to give people what they need. This is what, I'm telling you what you need. You need to take this a little deeper than you've ever taken it. That's what you need. You know what I mean? I promise you, if you take this one step deeper tomorrow than you've ever taken it, you open up, for example, I don't know, Romans 5 through 8. You open that up and start to allow the Holy Spirit to say, what do you think that's saying? Well, I know what it's saying. And then you let the Holy Spirit say, beyond that, what do you think it's saying? Or maybe allow the Holy Spirit to say this. What if it's not at all what you thought it was? And suddenly, you begin to be brought back to the why of everything, and life begins to explode within you. Wisdom, as I said, is not some abstract ideology, okay? We, we, we've probably spent more time trying to keep people from deep analytical thinking. We, I know we spent a lot of time keeping people from school because we believe if you start to think about things too deep, you'll lose your faith. Just, just stick with me for a second, okay? But, but does this not portray to anyone with half a mind that our gospel and our God can't be thought of too much. I mean, we teach so many people not to think too much about things and instead have faith. This, in, in, excuse me, this infers that faith is ignorance. And if faith is ignorance, it certainly must not be true. 
I would argue with the scriptures and all the church fathers backing me up the complete opposite. That if we hold the ultimate truth and wisdom, which is in God, in Christ, we should be able to use logic better to better understand God, to grow in wisdom, and thus have greater faith. What does it mean? What kind of faith do you have to step out in whatever the Lord has called you to or whatever decision the Lord's calling you to make? How much more faith do you have to step out in that when it actually makes sense within created reasoning? You know what I mean? So why does the tithe make sense? The tithe makes sense because I know that in the DNA of creation is a principle. And within that principle, there is a, as I release control, which is exactly what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was. I want to know good and evil for myself so I can decide if I want good or evil. Right? So control, when it is released, the principle is, as you release it, God releases it. It's a relational exchange. You open up your hands and God opens up his hands. That's covenant, right? So you don't just give because, oh, that's just what we're supposed to do. You don't think about it. Don't worry about it. You're not supposed to have money. A lot of places you're supposed to be poor. You know what I mean? You're just supposed to live in poverty. That's the call of God on this call of God in our lives. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? How much more do you release what the Lord has asked you to release when it makes sense within the created order? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, going go to church. Man, it just, it's not that big of a deal. Unless when you come into this place, there are things that God solely reserves for when we are in the room together that God withholds until we get in the room together. Where two or more are gathered, I'm there. You see what I'm saying? And so it doesn't just, it's not just something that we, you know, just have to show up to or something that we have to do or in a lot of places, something we get to do, right? It's something that when we show up, there is a reasoning and a purpose behind it. And we leave with a greater understanding of wisdom, which gives us a greater understanding of he who is wisdom, the son. And as we have a greater understanding of the son, suddenly our relationship with the son can begin to grow by way of the knowledge of the son. This is the prophecies, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. What do we think that means? How can I have a good marriage if I don't know every detail about my wife? It's not just about relationship. Our relationship is capped based on my knowledge of that which I'm in relationship with. And likewise, as my relationship grows, so grows my knowledge as well. They're not, they're not two different parts of two different things. Specifically, they're not against each other. They are one and the same. You can't have a relationship without knowledge. You can't have knowledge without a relationship. They are together. And many of us have tried to have a relationship with the Son without any knowledge whatsoever of what that means. Either this is awful or you guys are tired. So that's okay. I'm just going to say you guys are tired. I'm just playing. I love y'all. This was the issue for Christians in the second and third century. I'm going to give you a little history. Christians were seen as, and I'm reading straight from history books, okay? 
Christians were seen in the second and third century as, this is a direct quote, barbarians and ignorant. The philosophers and leaders of the Roman Empire argued against Christianity with falsities and questions, and the Christians in the second and third century had no idea how to answer these deeper questions. Um, The Romans, because they just couldn't stand the Christians because they refused to bow down to the leaders as gods. That was a soul issue. The sole issue that Rome hated the church for was the fact that they believed Roman leaders were divine. The church, worshiping God alone, God alone, first commandment, you know, worshiping God and God alone, no emperor, no other gods before me, etc., refused to bow down to the leaders of Rome. And for that reason alone, the church was persecuted. It was no other reason. It was just that. I mean, the church... They preached message of peace. They helped people. They cared for the poor. You see what I'm saying? I mean, they were great people, but Rome could not stand the fact that when these people were brought before these leaders that were supposed to be divine, they refused to bow down. That was the issue. Because of that, there was laws passed that you couldn't just grab a Christian, bring them into jail, and either kill them or put them in jail because you just wanted to, or even because they refused to bow down to the leader. So you had to come up with charges against these Christians so that when they were brought into court and then they were given the opportunity to bow down, they wouldn't do it. And when they didn't do it in front of the court, they were convicted and usually they were killed at that point. Okay, so you couldn't just grab somebody off the street. They had to be convicted of a charge. The reason that I say that is because Rome started passing along these falsities against the church. One of them was this, trigger warning. You know, I'm just giving you some history, but this is, this is not good. But it's false, so just ignore it. Um, but one of the rumors that Rome pushed around was that when the church gathered together and they took communion, they literally, this is the rumor, one of the members of the church would take their baby, firstborn baby, they would slaughter them and they would cook the baby into the bread. And when they took the bread in communion, they were literally eating flesh and blood. Now that's not true, but that was just one of the many rumors that Rome started spreading around in order to bring all these Christians in to convict them of ultimately not bowing down to the leader. Okay? And as this was taking place, the philosophers of the second and third century in Rome started asking questions of Christians as to why their God, for example, why did your God have to come in the flesh? Why did he have to die? I mean, we killed him. It was our grandparents. You know what I mean? Et cetera, et cetera. And the early Christians had no idea how to answer any of these questions. This is, I mean, let me give you a direct quote. They believe Rome, for example, that is a direct quote from the story of Christianity, volume one, Justo Gonzalez, great book. Anyway, says this, Christians were an ignorant log whose doctrines, although preached under the cloak of wisdom, were foolish and even self-contradictory. That's what the Romans believed. From this arose the early apologist, which simply means defenders. These were, and today we have the same thing. If you, maybe you've been in churches where you do apologetics. This is where apologetics comes from. Apologetics attempts to teach people how to defend their faith. The irony is, is the way you defend your faith is through what? Knowledge. So that's super ironic. Justin Martyr 
most of us know him, possibly the greatest theologian of this time, certainly the most famous early apologist. He started a school in Rome where he taught what he called the true philosophy, which was Christianity. Justin expanded the idea of the Word of God, which in Greek means both word and wisdom, logos. And according to Greek philosophy, the human mind does have the ability to understand reality because it shares in the logos or the universal reason that undergirds all reality. This is from uh, Justin Martyr. John affirms that Jesus is the Word or logos and that it was made flesh in Jesus. Thus, according to Justin, What has happened in the incarnation is that the underlying reason behind the universe, the Logos, the Word of God, has become flesh. And according to him, the incarnation was necessary for before it, we only had glimpses of God's reasoning. But now in Christ, we see it in its fullness and it is Christ himself. Okay. So from here, the early apologist were able to work out the wisdom of the universe or creation and lay the foundation for the church that exists today. According to the New Testament, the foundation is Christ. Matthew 21, he is the cornerstone. And according to John, Christ is the word that according to Proverbs is wisdom that everything exists through, that according to Paul is the very thing which holds all things together. So what I want to display just for a minute more That was all set up, but I don't have much more. Is in the middle of our rediscovery of the ancient and true Jesus right now, thus the ancient and true gospel, I want to reignite your desire for wisdom. It's the only reason I came to talk today. I want to reignite your desire for wisdom. And for most most of you, this desire was stamped out at a very early age. For most of you, the desire to know why or the desire to know how or the desire to know what, most of that for most of us was stamped out at an early age. And for those that it wasn't stamped out in, uh, well, y'all know, it was the ones in the church that always, they always asked too many questions. They always, you know, created a ruckus. They always had something to say. But somewhere deep down in them was a true and honest, um, was a true and honest ambition to discover the true God. And I see this in Veda. Like, we'll read her stories. We were reading uh, uh, Genesis 3 out of her children's storybook Bible. And uh, it's funny, now every time Jordan goes to read her any kind of devotion, she'll ask me to read it first to make sure we should actually read this to Veda. And, um, and so she handed me this, and she was like, do you think we should, we should read this? And, and so I sat down with her, and we started to explain to her as we're reading this story how this story was meant to be taken and perceived. And so as we're reading it, you can just see lights going off in her. Now she's six, right? But you can see lights going on. And that has led to so many different conversations that we don't shy away from. And we certainly don't give her just the generic answer for. We, that's led to conversations of us saying, this might be what God is saying here. This might be what the writer of Genesis is saying here. What do you think? And creating an environment Listen, this is true. 
This is real. This is true. Therefore, you can do all sorts of diving and discovery all through this, listen, without the risk of losing your faith. You can take this as deep as you want, and the reason people have been afraid to do that is they think, if I discover deep enough, I'll find that it's not true. Let me tell you, as somebody who has gone to the depths of it, you get to the bottom and you realize not only is it true, it's more true than I ever imagined. This is what the early apologists were attempting to do, to show the church we don't have to shy away from Rome's questions. We have the answers. We made Rome. Well, we didn't. God did. But you know what I'm saying? Like, we, we don't have to shy away when they ask. Why did, why did God have to take on flesh? Why? That doesn't make any sense. Actually, it does make sense. You know what I'm saying? And these early apologists begin to do what is actually discipleship, And this is exactly what Jesus does in the New Testament when he pulls out in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, when he starts saying things like, you know, Moses said this, but I say this. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Moses told y'all this, but I'm telling you you need to do this. And what I'm saying is a little different than what Moses had to say. What is Jesus doing? He's trying to pull them back in to true north. Back in to reason, because after all, he is the very reason through which everything else comes into being. Y'all with me? So, this is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is not to be cheap enough so that a delusional lost world can find their place here. It's not to be relevant so that those not yet in the church can find their way in because they get tricked into thinking it's a lot less than it really is. The purpose of the church is laid out in Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. And I'm going to read this, Matt. You can hop up here and then we'll be done. But listen to what Paul says here in Ephesians. Ephesians 4, this is what he says. I'm going to start at verse 7. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive, and he gave gifts to his people. When he says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts that he gave were that some would be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Listen, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come into the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the full measure of the full stature of Christ. We Listen to this part. You ready? We need this today more than ever. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about, listen, by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. Stop being, Paul says, stop being children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that you hear. But speaking the truth in love, grow up in every way into he who is the head, into Christ. He says, he compares these two. He says, we must grow into the full knowledge of the Son of God. And then he says, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. What is the answer to being children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine? Growing into the knowledge of the Son of God. 
We must grow up in every way into Christ. Christ is the word and the wisdom of God. Therefore, the primary way that we grow in Christ is to allow the Holy Spirit to grow us in wisdom. And this does not, just to reiterate this, this does not negate or replace experience or intimacy. I don't know why we ever got that idea that knowledge and experience can't be together. You can't have experience without that knowledge. Maybe for some of us, the thing that has kept us from the next level of intimacy or the next level of experience is when the Lord draws us to a place where we need to learn another piece of what it means to be in Christ or for the Son to be the exact representation of the Father or the Gospel or any other thing that the Lord's leading us into, when He leads us into that, which is the very thing that would lead us into the next level of intimacy, we have pulled back and said, I don't think I can go that far. That's not what I was told. Maybe you won't say that out loud, but maybe even just just subtly, there's just this natural kickback any time that the Lord dares us to ask, what if? Just a natural kickback. And I'm daring you today, what if the next time the Lord asks, what if? Or the next time the Lord asks, could this be blank? What if you just said, show me? What if when he says, come with me and let me show you a road less traveled by, you say, let me get my shoes on and you just start walking down that road. At worst, you get to the end of, into, to the, end of the road and realize something you didn't know before. At best, you find the answer to the longing of your heart for another level of connection. Your experience of God will always be limited by your knowledge of God. And again, I'm not talking about just general knowledge, okay? talking about intimate knowledge and your knowledge of God will always be grown by your experience of God. John 16, 13 says this, when the spirit comes, he will guide you into what? All truth. Why? Because he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears and he will declare to you the things that are to come. When the spirit of truth comes, so number one, Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth, number one. Number two, he says, this is why the spirit will come on you to guide you into all truth. I believe our experience with God has been limited by our lack of knowledge and understanding of who God is. And just in general, I'm not talking about us, just I'm talking about in general as a church, which as we've been learning, God is exactly like Jesus. So today, I want to encourage you to allow God himself by the Holy Spirit to begin to lead you into all truth and wisdom and reason that is not only God's, but is itself God in flesh. And if it is God in flesh, then it is innately who you are. As you begin to learn more about who God is, suddenly you begin to learn more about who you are because you are like him. So, As you grow in the knowledge of the Son of God, you grow in the knowledge of who you are. And suddenly, not just doctrine. When Paul says that, being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, it's not just some, you know, somebody like this Calvinist coming to you trying to prove sovereignty or whatever. Okay? Or or penal substitution atonement theory. That's not. When you look in the mirror and you start to say that you're less than what you are, 
that becomes a doctrine. And as you grow up in the knowledge of who Jesus is, thus grow up in the knowledge of who you are, suddenly when those doctrines begin to rear their ugly heads at you, you're no longer tossed to and fro by them because you know what's real. This is big. This is what doctrine is. Because you might say, well, you know, thinking less of yourself is not a doctrine. It absolutely is a doctrine. It's called original sin. That's the doctrine. The doctrine is because we are humans, because we came from Adam and Eve, every single one of us are innately evil. And I'm here to tell you today, that's not true. You're not innately evil. If you were, you'd walk outside the door and do evil things all day long. You're not innately evil. And if you were, then the death and resurrection of Christ means absolutely nothing. If Adam still has a hold on on the human race, then the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ did absolutely nothing. But Jesus himself says, I came to seek and to save. I came to make right that which was lost. And I believe he did. I believe our experience with God is about to take on new heights and new measures and new depths, all because we are in a season where we are submitting. And we've done this in the past, but I promise you it hasn't been like this. We're in a season where we are submitting to God's ways that his ideas and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Isaiah says, that his ways are higher than our ways, yet as we discover his ways, as we discover in Romans a renewed mind, as we are led into the full maturity of the knowledge of the Son of God, then suddenly we begin to see things from where God sees them. And suddenly all the things that used to knock us down and blow us down and blow us to and fro have no power over us. And when those things have no power over us, then suddenly our relationship with the Lord has no other hindrance but to go deeper and deeper and deeper as the scripture says, and deep begins to cry out to deep, begins to cry out to deep, begins to cry out to deep over and over in our lives until we get to the place where all of this, where the church, where our walk with the Lord is so much more than just dogma. It's so much more than, well, this is who I'm a Christian. It's so much more than, yeah, I read my Bible every now and then. I throw my money every now and then. I show up to church every now and then. I serve. I do. It's so much more than all that stuff. Suddenly, you feel confident in who you are in the midst of absolute silence, in the midst of absolute rest, because you are secured in the finished work of Jesus. And you're secured in the finished work of Jesus because you're submitting to a life of the doctrine of the finished work of Jesus and that alone. We'll not only be able to stand when the waves of life come crashing down on us, we'll be able to offer an effective witness to the creation that God has not only redeemed it from the pit, it's brought it back from death to life. This is, this is a weird message to preach, wisdom. But this week, I, I tried to get away from this at least 10 or 15 times. 
I tried to get away from this message at least 10 or 15 times, and I just felt the Lord saying, I need to stop right here. I need to put a pause on things, and I need to remind you the value of obtaining wisdom. And again, not abstract wisdom, not just you know what you're talking about, but you know who you are in relationship with. And as you gain that wisdom, I promise you, we're gonna find the answer to a lot of stuff that we've been praying for. So let me pray. Lord, I thank you for everything that you're doing in us. God, I thank you for this, this, it's not new. I thank you for this new level of revelation that you've invited us into. And I thank you for a family that has the faith and the trust to to say yes to an ancient path. There's a reason Jesus says the narrow way leads to life that only a few find. There's a reason. It's because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the way that everybody's doing it. It doesn't fit the ideas that everybody else says it should be. And yet it is the only way that leads to life. And so as we have cut back the bushes, as we have cleared out the walkway, suddenly we have found a path that was once glazed over. And not only have we found that path, we've started to walk down it. It doesn't mean we know everything. It means we're entering into the place where we can know the one who is everything. So God, I pray this week that you would just spark every single one of us to a place of discovery. Curiosity has been the word. I I don't do the word of the year. I think that's great if people want to do that. I don't do that um, because it's too cliche and I don't do a lot of stuff that's very cliche. Um, But if I was going to have a word for the year, it's curiosity. Curiosity. So I dare you today as a pastor, as a spiritual father, I dare you. I give you permission to be curious. I give you permission to dare to see the story beyond the story. I give you permission to allow Holy Spirit to lead you into a view of the Father that is so much more beautiful than any of us ever imagined because we're getting a clear picture of the Son. So Yahweh, we love you and honor you today in your name. Amen.